Welcome to Iraq, a show where we identify issues, provide the rules, give an analysis, and sometimes come to a conclusion. This is an SULC podcast. Today on IRAC, we welcome Shaniqua Gray, an SULC professor and former prosecutor, to tell us about Commonwealth versus Carter, a Massachusetts case in which the girlfriend of the victim was convicted of involuntary manslaughter for encouraging her boyfriend to commit suicide. You can find the citation in the description if you wish to read for yourself. We also welcome Colby Marchand, the editor-in-chief of the Southern University Law Review, to give some updates there. I'm one of your hosts, Zachary Harrison, a 2L at Southern University Law Center joined by Arthur Williams, the current SBA president and 3L at Southern University Law Center. Professor Gray, we really wanted to reach out to you as our resident criminal procedure expert, and we just had a few questions for you in regards to the case. The first of those questions being if this case were brought in Louisiana, do you feel like the outcome of it would have changed any? Well, to a certain degree. The outcome would not have changed with respect to the fact that there would have been a conviction and there would have been a sentence. However, it would be different with respect to what the crime would be. I think under Louisiana law, she would have, she probably would have easily been charged with a criminal assisted suicide. Now, you know, while we could possibly charge with some other things, I think that that statute and provision clearly encompasses the behavior here. That statute provides, applies to situations where there's any intentional advising, encouraging of another to commit suicide, or providing the physical means or knowledge of such means to another for the purpose of enabling the other person to commit or attempt to commit suicide. And when we start to talk about either advising or encouraging a person to commit suicide, clearly that envisions words. And that's one of the most difficult parts that the courts had with this case. The mere fact that when you start to deal with words alone, whether or not you can really bring in the the various types of homicides, whether it's manslaughter or some other grade. And so, but when we're talking about assisting a person in suicide, it envisions that they're going to be either worse when you're advising them, you're consulting with them, and even providing them with the knowledge that they would need. And looking at this particular case, we have that. We have a situation where there were clearly a number of words, a number of text messages. If you look at the text messages, they were extensive. And also, I just want to say that, and it, this uh, provision doesn't say necessarily, but I think it's something that the legislature can certainly look at. When you talk about psychological intimidation or manipulation, because you had this, this uh, the defendant in the case saying things like, oh, you're not going to do it. You keep saying you're going to do it, but it never happens. Those types of words, specifically dealing with someone who was known to have suffered from depression, known to have sought counseling and have other mental illnesses or or defects, it seems that there was a psychological manipulation of him in order to encourage him to commit the crime. And then also there was evidence that she helped to provide him with the knowledge or other information to assist him. They had figured out at some point that it would occur possibly by the carbon monoxide poisoning and she was explaining to him and trying to, you know, tell him how he could Google 
ways in which to obtain carbon monoxide and they looked at the water pump they looked at the generator and for the most part it seems as though that was the you know the decision that she helped him to come up with that so basically I'll say to answer your question directly though um, I think that that would have been an easy provision to go under we also have our negligent homicide that provides for homicide when there is some criminal negligence specifically when there's a substantial deviation be below the standard of care that would have been expected to have been maintained by a reasonable person and when we talk about a substantial deviation in the standard of care you know we know we have a standard in tort actions where they're below the standard of care but here we're talking about a substantial deviation and there are a number of cases in Louisiana law and even some of the cases that they pointed out in that decision that really shows a substantial deviation below standard of care people for instance in Louisiana they found where you may have someone walking up to a house and they know someone is out there or family members are returning they just shot through the door or if you know that there are other people in the room I think there was one nightclub where the guy and female were arguing over the gun in the crowded nightclub and then the gun ended up discharging whereas for civil action we would only be looking at a failure to exercise a standard of care that a reasonable person would act for there to be criminal negligence we're looking for a substantial deviation below the standard of care so here these things are are much worse and to get it to the criminal level so when you start randomly firing a gun randomly shooting through doors not knowing who's there that's when we um, elevate that conduct to a level of criminal negligence and there is a possibility that under this case it could have been brought when you have a person who is not only even aside from the counseling and so forth to have helped to put him in that situation and advising him and encouraging him and manipulating him to put himself in that situation there seemed to have certainly have been a duty to have tried to remedy that situation and to try to prevent and to try to provide some sort of assistance or help in order to make sure that you know the appropriate authorities were there to try to help him we know that I think based on the facts she contacted someone at a later point I think one of her friends and said I could have stopped him I could have could have told him to get out of that car I could have uh, called 911 I could have told him not to go at all so she recognized that there was a duty and that it would have made a difference yet she failed to exercise that duty so it seemed like that would be a, a substantial deviation below the standard of care that a person would expect to maintain that would take their failure to act to a level of criminal conduct as opposed to just a tortious level you know we wouldn't have had this particular conviction but I do think that even under Louisiana law our statutes are sufficient to have gotten a conviction Professor Gray, I really like that you mentioned the cases that the Massachusetts court used and that mm -hmm. you mentioned for our criminal assisted suicide, there's a knowledge component. Can you make a distinction between Atencio and Persimpion in the cases that they used in convicting her? Would those be the cases specifically with respect to the husband who helped his his right. wife commit suicide? Okay, well, for instance, and we know that in one of those cases, we had the wife who said that she wanted to commit suicide. We had the husband who 
you know, he said he, he didn't think that she would. And so he proceeded to get the gun for her. He proceeded to load the gun up for her. When, when she was unable to reach the trigger, he suggested that she take off her shoes. And needless to say, she was able to reach it and kill herself. And now in these cases, you know, we do have a distinction here. And one of the problems the course had, which dealt with the mere words that we had in, in this particular case versus in these other cases, their conduct extended far beyond mere words and into actions. So we had providing them with the instrumentality. So we had him, you know, not only encouraging her, which would have been different had he sat on the other side of the room and said, okay, well, I don't think you'll do it. Oh, there's a gun up there, you know, saying certain things. But the, then we, we also had him taking specific action in order to make it make that happen and if we apply louisiana law which is a little different than the the involuntary manslaughter statute but even under louisiana law and we, and we start to talk about a substantial deviation below a standard of care that would take to get to a criminal negligence i think you have that that's the type of conduct that the courts have looked at in Louisiana law to just and how there's a failure to exercise a standard of care of a reasonable person that a reasonable person would not not only encourage the person to do it but to help provide them with the instrumentality and to and to take some action in order to make it happen we had the other case with the Russian roulette where we had individuals who put the put the bullet in there spun it around put it to his own head he shot it didn't do anything gave it to someone else same thing fired the weapon it didn't do anything and then lastly we had the victim when he shot at himself it went off and once again you have another situation where they're taking specific action in loading up a gun giving it to the person and putting them in that situation they created that situation as opposed to here we only have the words we only have the words even though there was some extensive amount of counseling over what appeared to be some distinct period of time we had advising we had counseling and so i can certainly see there is a distinction in those cases but i can't say that necessarily that it is enough of a distinction that there should necessarily be a difference in the outcome because i think that we have some action but it's a matter of degree we have the discussion, we have saying things, but here when, when you give them the gun, it's a closer proximity between, you know, the actual giving them the instrumentality to use that they're using as opposed to just the words and the action, maybe sending them a Google link on how to commit suicide and so forth. So you're doing something, but it's farther removed from what actually causes the suicide. So, I mean, I could see that if you argue it and, and leave it to the jury, I could see that a jury could possibly find that the action could be sufficient, even in comparison to those other cases. But needless to say, we do have a closer proximity there. And when we start to really talk about proximate cause, I mean, I think in addition to the words, you also are becoming kind of a little bit more further removed from what actually caused the death. So do you think that this case and cases like these will kind of put us on the path toward adjusting the words alone standard? Yes, I think so. And because of a number of reasons, first and foremost, whenever you have a case that makes any type of national attention like this, even if it's just local in a particular state, 
we know that our legislatures recognize that this is a loophole that you want to close. Okay, so we know that there's going to be attention put on making sure that you can address this. And let's face it, this is just a part, you know, we're at a time in our society where this becomes more relevant. A few years ago, we didn't have sexting. The sexting as a result of our text messaging and things like that. So they're recognizing that the crimes are being committed because that is a primary means of communication. And so being that you're communicating, whether it's with respect to sexual innuendo, with pornography, those statues have have been addressed in those particular areas, bullying and cyberbullying and all these things. They're recognizing that this is becoming a more and more common means of communication and possible criminal conduct. And as a result of that, yes, the statutes are being crafted in a way to address it. It's a possibility that if the legislature believes that it may not be on the same level of being their president and providing it, they can certainly provide for a different range of penalties the way they do with other things. Like if there's a gun, there's a higher range of penalties. They can say if the person, if it's mere words, it could only be in a particular way. But to say that this conduct is not criminal and that it should not be punished, I think that that's far-reaching. But I think many will certainly argue that the words could possibly have a, a different level of culpability than if a person provided the gun itself. You kept mentioning the word proximity mm-hmm. and how that there was a constant stream of text messaging and yeah. how in those other two cases, the two people right. were physically there. In this case, had there not been a constant stream of texting and had mm-hmm. she not been messaging him up to the moment where Mm -hmm. he decided to take his life, do you think that would have changed the outcome? I think it would have made a difference. And the reason why I think it would have made a difference is because, in my opinion, and what I would have argued to the jury in this case, is we're not just dealing with words alone. What we're really arguing here is that it's the amount of words and it's the ongoing and even the time in which it is occurring that made the difference to to the point where it is more than just mere words. I'm quite sure that if he had some ex-girlfriend in the past who had just said, I hope you kill yourself one day, that person would not have been convicted. That person wouldn't have even been charged. So it's not the mere fact that you had some words or that the person said, go kill yourself, but it is the amount of the words. It's the ongoing, the continued counseling, even during the incident. Now, and let me draw a distinction between the person counseling them to do it and encouraging them to do it and the subsequent failure to do anything to stop it once she knew that it was going on. And so we have two different issues here with respect to the negligent conduct and not doing something to stop it, which I think is criminally culpable in and of itself. But I also think that the person, it could be, they're criminally culpable in terms of all of the, the statements that are being made leading up to it that really kind of help to bring the situation about. And I think in this case, you know, aside from a person who merely saying that you said a lot, Now you also have a situation where the words really have gone to you really created this situation, you know, or you you also created you helped to create the situation and not just you told him to go and do it. And then you also have that other issue of the, of course, the failure to act 
at a time when he could, you know, when he should have. And I also mentioned the, the proximity of it and the fact that she was also living in a different state. And and I do believe that the judge mentioned, it was even in a footnote, and I forgot the exact words, but the judge talked specifically about the fact that because of their text messaging back and forth, it was so ongoing, so many, and so constant until they practically had the effect as if they were in a conversation together right there. Specifically, it says, although not physically present when the victim committed suicide, the constant communication with him by text message and by telephone leading up to and during the suicide made her presence at least virtual. And I think that's interesting to say virtual, the virtual presence there. And so that's interesting how the, the court kind of looked at that to say it had the same effect, basically, as if he had, she had been there saying those things. There were also some phone calls when Carter called Roy and listened to him die. Does that add to her sentencing, or does mm -hmm. that add to what the judges said in the footnote with mm -hmm. the virtual presence? Yeah, I think that it, could, it should be both. Obviously, you want to consider everything in order to determine all of the aggravating circumstances and aggravating factors in helping to determine the sentence. That is just a sort of thing that just makes it that much more of an outrageous type of crime when people hear about those things. So it certainly helps add to the sentencing. And I think it also, it, it certainly adds, I would think that, you know, if the court is looking at the fact of her being there, virtually being there, with respect to her ability to influence him and his conduct, then no doubt if you're talking to him during that time and you're listening to it and you have the ability to say stop, get out, give yourself some air, then without a doubt it has the same effect as if you were actually there. So I think it's applicable on both and it certainly adds to the criminal culpability. Professor Gray, a lot of our listeners have taken your courses towards or evidence, criminal procedure, etc. And I have an interesting question as it relates to that. Lots of people know and some might not know that in your former life you were a prosecutor. So if this case had have came to you as a prosecutor, would you have brought it to trial and what charges would you have brought against her? I would have brought it to trial. One of the things that people probably don't know is just in general when you're a prosecutor, a very important part of prosecution is working with the victims in a case, their families. You know, you don't drop any charges or anything without speaking to the family, making sure that they know about it, that they're okay with it. You never want a situation where people read about it on the news or as a case that I had myself with a molestation case that had gone on for some time. And we had, we were not able to get in contact with the victim's family because they had moved. And one day the girl just was walking down the street and saw the guy. He was just out. They didn't even know that he was out. You certainly do not want to ever have that type of situation. And let me tell you, they were not happy about it. In a situation like this, you have a distraught victim's family. The family, they're there. You're dealing with them. You want justice. You want them to feel like justice has been served, that people have had to to answer for their conduct and that they've answered for their actions. So there would have been some charges brought. And as I said, in Louisiana, I'm pretty sure we probably would have gone with assisted suicide because of the fact that the statute is just so clear 
and it is intended for this very type of situation. We would not have had to over, try to overcome the words aspect because the statute clearly envisions the use of words in order to counsel a person, encourage them, provide them with the mean, with, you know, with the information, to provide them with the knowledge. It just clearly fits in there. And the statute has a large range of penalties of up to 10 years to deal with all of the mitigating factors that might be present such that a person can potentially not have as harsh a sentence as some other situations. So it could end up being two years or one year, three years in a different situation where they may not have done so much. But in this situation, I think it would have been a pretty strong sentence. A person probably would have gotten, I think, even a more harsh sentence in Louisiana. In this case, because we have the statute and it's just so clear, it's just the circumstances are the type of circumstances that are kind of outrageous in a way, particularly dealing with someone who was just so vulnerable. I think that the victim in the case was just a, bit, a very vulnerable victim who was subject to being easily manipulated and she really took advantage of it in such a a bullying way and may perhaps one day we'll all know what her motivation was but it just seemed to be it was just an opportunity to manipulate someone I just don't understand any other reason from the, the things that were being said that it was just an opportunity to to manipulate and control someone and and I also understand that she may have had some mental issues at some point as well. That might have been, I'm sure, a mitigating factor in her sentences. She might have not known better either, to a certain extent. They obviously didn't find that she didn't know any better, but that they would take that in consideration in terms of minimizing, not giving her as strong a sentence. In the event that a conviction was handed down here in Louisiana with you as the prosecutor, what would you think the likelihood of the defendant being granted an appeal would be? I think she would have probably, she'll be granted appeal. There are appealable issues, whether it was some statements that would come in, you know, the text messaging, how they got the messages. You know, there could be a number of issues that, you know, would just depend on the investigation, the way it went down. We have to look at all of those things. But I don't think that the outcome would change on, on appeal. I can't imagine that they would find that that the case does not satisfy the elements of the crime such that they would have to question that with the jury and come back and find that they would not be able to prove the case. I think the evidence is, is sufficient. Professor Gray, we recognize that your schedule is very hectic and we would like to thank you for joining us on Iraq today. And now on Iraq, we have Colby Marchand. Colby, tell us what's going on with Law Review. We inducted 16 new junior editors into the Southern University Law Review. Marissa Batiste, Andre Kuzan II, Farron Davis, Monette Davis, Morgan Decody, Evan Galopter, Jimmy Herring, Mary Catherine Joyner, Tara Molanson, Aram Mughal, Brooke Roach, Tanika Starks, Rachel Savetlik and Dylan Yeso. We're super proud to have them. We're looking forward to what they're going to do for us. And you also have your executive board. Who's, who's on that? Correct. Uh, my um, executive editor is Daisha Hodges. She is my right hand. I don't know where I would be today without Daisha. At managing editor, we have Stephanie Stevens. She handles the business side of our review. She's also been doing all of our planning for all of our events. And then at articles editor, we have Charles Parr. He's in charge of soliciting our articles that, we, uh, that we're trying to publish. 
So if you want an article, you're gonna have to go through Charles. Is that everyone? That's everybody. All we just right. have we're four of us. Oh, that's that's awesome. So Colby, you mentioned that Charles is the person in charge of getting articles published. Can you give us some more insight on that process? So publishing an article is a pretty big ordeal. It takes a lot of time, a lot of effort. To begin with, you're going to want to decide if you're publishing a case note or a case comment. The case comment is going to be a lot broader, a lot more general. The case note is going to be a lot more specific to one case. And for a student, it's going to be very important to have an advisor, probably be somebody that deals with that area of law you're looking to write about. They can kind of help guide you along the process. After you have your topic and your advisor picked, you're gonna to wanna to do a preemption check. That's gonna just basically make sure that no one has written on your specific topic recently. You can do that through Westlaw or Lexis. If you see Susan walking around, she could explain to you a little bit how to do a preemption check on your own. And through that, you're gonna set up some notifications on either Westlaw or Lexis, whichever one you're using. That'll kind of let you know if somebody writes on your topic when you're halfway th through writing, which would ruin your process, or if something comes up in that area of law that you might want to add to your article that you're writing. After that, the, the best advice I can give is to set up a calendar with your dates. I had Professor Odenay as my advisor whenever I was writing my article, and he basically gave me my life schedule for the next six months as we were writing. But it'll also help keep you on track, especially if you're not in law review or on journal. It'll help you keep your whole life in track while you're trying to do this process. Then I guess I would say go into making an outline. This is where you're gonna start compiling your research. The biggest hurdle in writing an article is getting all the research you need out of the way. Then that next part is gonna be that first draft, which is normally pretty terrible. I will say that my first draft came back with lots and lots of red on it from Professor Odenay. Don't be discouraged by that. First draft and the research are the hardest parts of writing your article. After you're done with that, it's gonna be a little bit easier to finish it. It's just gonna be revising and revising and revising and moving stuff around and making sure you have all your footnotes where they need to be, everything like that. Now, specifically to get an article published, there's a bunch of different ways that can go about depending on where you're trying to get it published. For instance, we use two websites called Scholastica and Expresso. Charles will be checking that. We get notifications when an author uploads a new article. You can upload it there. I think I'm pretty sure it's free to do that and we'll get a notification that it's there. You can also use a site called SSRN, which is free. The whole world can see SSRN. Anybody, anywhere can see that. Another way you can do it is by sending your article straight to the article's editor for that specific law review that you're looking to get into. Some law reviews have general themes that they go for just all the time. Some law reviews are just looking for the best articles they can find. Some law reviews may do a symposium. They may have some specific topic they want to address that semester, but it, it all depends. Your best option is going to be to submit it on Expresso, Scholastica, sites like that, SSRN. Also, I would check into a specific law review you're looking to get published in. I would check with them to see if they have a deadline. So you definitely need to check with that and keep up with those timelines because, hey, if you don't get it published this go-round, somebody else might write about it and get it published next go-round. And right. nobody's going to want to publish a student article that you know, a well-known professor just wrote the same thing on. You're going to follow those timelines and stick to it. If you have questions about that, 
definitely come talk to us in Law Review. We're, we're very open door. You can find myself. You can find Charles Parr. He can also explain it to you as well. So definitely don't hesitate to come talk to us if you have questions about writing an article. That's what we're here for. We, we're here to help you guys learn a little bit about, you know, scholastic writing. Actually, Jacody showed me the timeline that Odin gave you, and according to that, I am way behind. Oh, yeah, article. yeah. It, it's, uh, it was pretty stressful, but I will say having an advisor that sticks to you and stays on you and mm -hmm. is very clear about their, their requirements and their goals for you, it will help you write a much better article. Without Odne, I don't know what I would have done with my life. So I'm very appreciative of what he did for me. Thanks for telling us how to get published. Does Laura, do you have anything that's coming up? Well, actually, we're, we are gonna be partnering hopefully with the Thurgood Marshall Law Review. We just had, you know, Hurricane Harvey come through there and a mm -hmm. lot of those people in that school were affected by the fallout from Hurricane Harvey. We're actually selling Hurricane Harvey t-shirts. All the profits from those sales will go directly to Thurgood Marshall. We, we have a, a draft of the what the shirt design will look like. It'll cost $15 flat. You can get in touch with Daisha Hodges, um, Marissa Batiste, or Ariel Harris, they're all on Law Review. Shoot them an email. We definitely want you guys to come out and support, you know, another HBCU that, that that's hurting from the recent events. All right, well, thank you, Colby, and we appreciate you coming on to Iraq. Thank you for listening. On the next episode, get ready to hear how I feel about data as a corporeal thing. That's right. Expect Scarlett Johansson to materialize from your phone. You'll hear me next time on IRAC, an SULC podcast. This episode of IRAC featured music by Eric Czar and Bensound.com. I would also like to thank our executive producers, Jessica Hawkins, Arthur Williams, Jonathan Sanji, Kelly Chuku, Anionwood, and Zachary Harrison.